Before I left Maui to come here on this teaching trip, I went to visit one of the elders that I revere in Maui. And uh, before I leave my hometown, I always try to visit my elders because I never know uh, I might be away and something could happen to them and, and I won't be, I wouldn't have given them uh, my love just before I leave. So it's really important for me to do this each time when I can. So I visited this benefactor of mine who now is 95 years old and when I moved to Maui about 35 years ago, she helped me to get there. I was a single parent of three children, and she was very, very helpful to me, very, very supportive, gave me a place to stay, helped me to find a job, got me settled in. And when my children started growing up, and uh, a couple of them were going to college, she helped pay their way through college every month. She sent me a little check. She was really devoted to her own Christian path, and I could see that she was really striving the best she could to be a good human being, to uh, be in harmony with her family and her community around her. She had a lot of wisdom, just down-to-earth wisdom, which actually translated into um, much more wisdom than down-to-earth, very deep spiritual wisdom. She had a lot of balance in what she thought she needed to do, and she was a great mentor to me, a great uh, example of how to live one's life. When I met her, she was in her 60s, which is my age now. I'm 64 this year. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a long time, and I wonder, where did the time go? Now I'm the age that she was when I first met her. And we've been through a lot of worlds together. We've traveled together. She's taken me to the Far East several times on her nickel and um, really shown me the world. I have a great deal of, of love for her, of course. When I visit her, her, her skin isn't glowing the way it used to, you know, when she was in her 60s, my age now. And her, uh, actually, she easily gets bruises, and her skin is like very, very thin parchment paper. It's, it's really um, a Dharma teaching to be in front of her. Her mind doesn't remember a whole lot. She doesn't remember my name, but she does remember that I'm a safe person to be with. She does ask me, do I know you? And I say, yeah, you do. And she says, I think I do. (laughs) And uh, even though her mind doesn't remember very well, the graciousness of her her ways of being always come out. Are you thirsty? Are you comfortable? Can I get you something to eat? Her legs don't take her around very well. She's in a wheelchair now. But what I notice about her the most, even though kind of her bones and her skin are very different, um, her mind is very deep into a more intuitive mind. Uh, I can see, like shining, shining through that is her inner beauty. And recently when I visit her, I've thought, 
to myself, now sometime soon, you know, the time has gone so quickly, in a blink of an eye, I could be that age. And uh, now, you know, it's, it's just all going downhill now, <laughs> everything in the body. And there's no use of trying to, I mean, I still try to exercise and do things and um, keep, keep things up as much as I can. But what I really want to develop is inner beauty, not, not so much put so much energy and tension to the beauty of the body, but to the beauty of the heart, to the beauty of the mind. Because that's what I see shines through as we get older. So lately I've been reflecting on that a lot, on inner beauty, being around the elders of my life and seeing how they, because they've taken care of their speech and behavior and really paid careful attention to it, maybe more in their later lives than earlier lives, I don't know, really. But I see that um, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to be much more careful about that. So that when the youthful glow and vibrancy of the beauty of the physical body fades away, there can be that inner glow, that inner beauty that carries me through the rest of life. And so by inner beauty, I mean the qualities of a discerning and compassionate mind and heart. Knowing what leads to disharmony and avoiding that is very basic. Knowing what leads to harmony and developing that. And because of doing this, of being very careful about those two, about relinquishing or avoiding what leads to disharmony, developing or cultivating what leads to harmony. This is the fertile ground from which wisdom and very deep compassion can grow. And that's what I want in my life, more and more of that. So in the ancient Pali language, the language that uh, the teachings of the Buddha were uh, recorded in, along with Sanskrit and other languages, but the Pali language was one of the first languages that the teachings were recorded in. These virtuous qualities that create harmony within us and around us are called paramis, roughly translated as perfections of character, paramis. So I'm going to name all of them, but not really speak about all of them. These ten in the Theravada tradition are generosity, morality, or living in harmony, renunciation, balanced effort. Effort is the fourth, but we like to uh, put that word balanced in there to be really clear. Balanced effort. Wisdom, truthfulness, resolve is a seventh. Then there's goodwill, equanimity, and patience. These are the ten. These are the qualities of a human being that is developing inner beauty, that has inner beauty, that you can be around and it shines beyond their physical appearance. This is the grace of of our lives. So no matter what condition the body is going through, uh, we have this, we carry this through with us. 
It's a beautiful gift that we give to ourselves, a beautiful gift that we give to others when we consciously develop them. Usually we look for this uh, deep kind of feeling of inner beauty, uh, happiness in others, in persons and things and conditions other than ourselves, outside of ourselves. And these are conditions, things, persons, really outside of our control. We may have some influence, of course, but changes are going on within people, within conditions, and we can't control it. But the cultivation of these qualities is very much in our power when we really turn our minds towards seeing what they are, seeing where there might be some limitation or weakness and um, developing that, or seeing when they're really strong and nourishing those strengths that we already have. They're an unending source of inner stability for us. When we feel these qualities within us, it makes the mind and heart very, very at ease. It feels like we're very, very stable in our lives. We kind of have a reliance on being able to go back to them, call them forth whenever we need them. They create a sense of safety for us. They create a sense of, well, this is a place where we can go, where we feel really, really safe. They're our true place of refuge. These paramis or wholesome qualities are generic to cultures, to religions, to um, societies in life that really value uh, the wholesome heart that really value harmony within a community or within that society. We don't even have to be religious, of course. One of the, my friend Yogi said that this path that we're on is just common sense. You know, what we're talking about when we offer the Dharma to you, when you look at it in just a forthright way. It's just common sense. But this yogi said, it's advanced common sense when we look at it really clearly. Because it encourages us to activate these kinds of qualities consciously. And sometimes we can just set them aside and say, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. I just want to know something deeper, like what is emptiness all about, or What does liberating wisdom mean? Um, But we really can't bypass this area, or else it's just all in the head and, and not really in our minds, hearts, and bodies. We want to consciously encourage and activate this inner beauty. We want to consciously deactivate whatever the opposites of this inner beauty are. So this word parami, usually translated as perfection, but a deeper meaning has uh, two ways that we can look at it, from the root word param. Param first means carrying one across to the further shore. 
So that's that energy that carries one across from this place of uh, being in a place of suffering to a place of feeling free from suffering. You might say it carries us to the shore of liberation through the ups and downs of life, through the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of life. This is what it carries us through to that deep unconditional peace. And the second root meaning uh, maybe could come from the word parama. And you hear of the word paramount, paramount, which means the utmost or foremost importance. Of foremost importance, these paramis are in carrying us to the other shore, in carrying us to places of deeper and deeper compassion and wisdom. This inner beauty doesn't depend on physical beauty. It doesn't depend on what we know in our minds, like what our education has been all about. It doesn't depend on our wealth or our status in society or our career, our book knowledge, our worldly accomplishments. It doesn't depend on any of that, our possessions. It doesn't depend on anyone outside of us giving us some kind of beauty from within, like just kind of shining their light so we could live off of their light. But it's only by our own intention, by our own ability to activate these forces in our own minds and hearts, to resolve, to really turn our attention to the places where we feel we could use some more attention, careful attention. So tonight I want to talk about this inner beauty in relationship to the second parami, which is virtue. Uh, In Pali, it's called sila, the harmonious way that we live uh, through our speech and our behavior. It's outlined in the five precepts that are taken every morning. It's these reminders of us, uh, for us, to be very careful about how we say things, what we do. So one of the characteristics of sila is harmonizing. When you look this word up in the Buddhist psychology or Abhidhamma, the characteristic of sila is harmonizing. Living in harmony with one's highest inner values living in harmony with one's highest inner values. On a retreat like this, and when we're silent and quiet and we hear the Dhamma over and over again, we start to really deepen into understanding what are our highest values. Not just what one is speaking about up there uh, in back of the podium, but what is it for us? And we get all these examples and we start to reflect in ourselves what's important for us, the values that we really hold dear to us, that carry through us, that carry us through life. What are those? One of the most important things you can do in your life is to really reflect on this, on what your values are, instead of just going willy-nilly, following other people around, or even your teacher by just listening, but put it into your own minds and hearts and really look at that. 
harmonizing and being in harmony with the highest values of the community we live in. This is really important too. Different communities have, and different families have different values. And what's important to them, as long as it's wholesome, of course, mostly it is, and to see what, what is important to them that you are harmonizing with. Um, when I'm with my children, my grown children, they have certain family values and actually, they, they raise their children with different kinds of values in different ways, all good, but accentuate some more than others. And I really try to be attentive to that, to be sensitive to that, to what, what each one values in their life. Some value more, uh, in more in a Christian way. Some of them, uh, one of them more understands uh, the laws of cause and effect, and really values that. So what is it that our community, our family values, and being in harmony with that? It's said that this kind of conduct of living in harmony composes the mind. And we know that to be true when we feel at ease with how we're in alignment with our deepest or highest values. Our mind and heart is composed. It's very, it makes it very easily quiet. This is so important in the deepening of wisdom because our minds won't be quiet if we aren't living in harmony with our highest or deepest values. There have been numerous times when I've gone to a retreat and maybe I've had a disagreement or even a fight um, you know, an argument with one of my children, my uh, younger, when they were younger, even grown. And then when I get to the retreat, I, I, I don't feel at ease. My mind can't settle down. It keeps going over and over the words that I said that were hurtful or the words that I received that were hurtful to me. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And I end up in a, in a place where not really quiet inside, can't reach those deepest places of real clarity in the mind to see the truth of life. In a quiet mind, in a still mind, it's really possible to see what the truth of life of that moment really is. It's really possible to see things as they really are. Those deep places of impermanence we're letting go, it, it, it's not about a forceful letting go, but it's seeing that the mind lets go because that's its nature, to let go. And it's just seen so clearly how the mind sees that there's nothing to hang on to, and if we do hang on, it causes a lot of suffering. So it, seizes, it sees that dukkha, that suffering, so clearly because of attachment, because of holding on. And in the ease and the quiet and the stillness and the clarity of the mind, it comes to see the conditionality of all of life. How, you know, what we think is this self are different conditions coming together over and over again. And in the quiet and the space of life, of that deep living, we see that um, the space between those conditions and how it's not solid at all. We really see the truth of 
not self. So it's so important to develop these qualities, this inner beauty in our lives. Usually when the Buddha was invited to offer teachings to a community, he started in a gradual way, starting with the teaching of generosity, actually, and then the teaching of sila, or harmonious living, because this is the fertile ground from which wisdom would grow. Without this, wisdom's just a a few words that we can put together, or a lot of words that come together that make us believe that we're wise, or others believe that we're wise. But really, we don't know from a place of inner purity. It might be just from an intellectual intelligence of the Dharma. So it's helpful to really put importance in this area of sila, of this kind of inner beauty. I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life that I've come to see that I really need to clean up my act. And I'll go over some of those paramis and maybe some of the precepts and uh, start to reflect in which area do I need more attention that I can put more careful attention. And I really try to take one or two or a few and that may, might relate to one another. And it's not making a big deal about it, not you know, tooting my horn to anybody about it because definitely there are so many times that I fail to really put careful attention there. But to see if I can quietly um, put more energy into developing any or some of those that work together consciously reflecting in the morning, taking some quiet time before sitting, even if it's just sitting in my bed, to do the uh, refuges and precepts. So basically the precepts have to do with refraining from harming others, which harms our own hearts, really. We give careful attention through not killing, not taking life, And we see that we can practice that in many ways, from ways that are really gross. You know, of course, we don't harm any other, take life from any other beings. Um, We all would know that. But how can we be much more careful about that? When we take our steps and we see some life beneath us, can we just move our foot a little bit, or step wider, or not step just wait for them to pass or step over. This is a way that we see it's not just refraining from killing, but to practice the preservation of life as much as we can. Not taking what has not been offered. Um, So even in, in very, very subtle ways, how can we practice that? Recently when I was in Uh, Nepal and Lumbini, uh, taking some time of retreat for myself, there was, I was assigned to this table as a yogi, and I was, um, there were many things on the table, but I didn't know if they were really for me. You know, there were, there were some condiments and also some things like some little um, uh, nuts that we could have, perhaps, that were on the table, perhaps for some protein, but I was trying to be really careful with the, with the precepts so that 
I didn't take it until it was offered. So uh, then when somebody off said, everything on this table you can take, then I felt, oh, okay, I, I feel like I'm not taking what is not offered. Just paying subtle attention to any of that. Not speaking untruthfully. Um, and of course, right speech has a lot more to do with just not speaking untruthfully. But in the precepts, it's precisely that. Not speaking an untruth. Even though, even if it's presented as a joke, what the Buddha said to his son Rahula, um, is be careful about speaking untruthfully, even if it's as a joke. And uh, it's interesting to, to have read and understood that before the time of any of the Buddha, while this Buddha-to-be is a bodhisattva, he might or she might break any of the rules, you know, the precepts, or go against any of the paramis except this one of speaking untru- the un- uh, an untruth, a lie. Because as my, one of my teachers said to me one time, how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth, if you can't stand on the truth? I remember one time when I was at my very first... Um, long retreat that I actually carried out fully. It was a one-month retreat in Australia. And uh, we were asked to report to the teacher. And we reported in groups. And uh, in the group I heard other people saying that they could sit and be with their breath over and over again without their mind wandering. Or they could sit for many hours. And I thought, oh, I must be in the wrong group because I'm, you know, sleepy, restless, all the um, defilements were coming up, and it couldn't, I really couldn't stay with just the breath. It was wandering all the time. So I reported as, as I really thought, well, this is how it goes. I, I'd like to get a good um, piece of advice, and I can only get it by telling the truth. So that evening, uh, this Sayadaw, Seda Upandita gave a talk and he said, you must be able to speak the truth precisely and clearly when you give your report. Because how can you realize the truth if you can't stand on the truth, if you can't speak the truth? And uh, he said, all of those who have not spoken the truth is precisely and even subtly, whatever you've said subtly, I'd like you to Come to my kuti, my cottage, and let me know that you haven't spoken the truth and ask for forgiveness and say that you will do, you will try your best to speak the truth, to take the, that precept again. And I really looked over what was going on in my own mind at that time and I thought, yes, I, I, I said the truth. It, it's okay, I don't have to get in that line. It was so good. It was so good. So all these ways, you know, refraining from sexual misconduct, conduct that can harm another uh, indirectly as well as directly. Um, When we harm our partners uh, by having sexual misconduct in other places. Uh, Refraining from the use of drugs that make the mind unclear, that uh, make the mind go into delusion. So these are all ways that we, we try to be very, very careful as much as we can 
by refraining uh, from all of these and by developing their opposites. Actually, by refraining from these, we automatically develop their opposites. These um, practices of harming through killing, through stealing, speaking untruthfully, and so forth, what they're developing are greed, hatred, and delusion over and over and over again. So this is a deep reason why we practice these, to not develop greed, hatred, and delusion, but to develop their opposites. So we're not asked to follow these blindly, but to actively explore their value, their refraining value in the world, and to develop this careful attention as a skill set that we're really aware of throughout our lives in the world, among our family members, among our work co-workers, and on and on. To understand how their interdependency is essential to awakening this liberating wisdom that frees us from suffering. It's said that the proximate causes for this careful attention, this sila, this living in harmony to arise, are known as the two guardians of the world. And I was really interested in this, the two guardians of the world, thinking that these were some kind of angelic or a celestial forces or beings outside of myself because I was raised in a Catholic tradition. And so I, I do have deep reverence for the, actually the efficacy of that, um, that there are beings, and celestial beings that exist beyond our own ability to see them. But these two guardians, uh, it is said, are not outside of ourselves, but they're in our hearts. These two guardians are this shining light of inner beauty that's within us. And this is what I, I want to talk about in terms of inner beauty and related to the precepts, because they actually are the basis of the precepts that we take. They, they're actually the, the cause and condition for uh, the precepts and our, our deep knowledge to know that we must refrain from harming. So in the ancient language of Pali, uh, they are called hiri and otapa. And I'll Hiri is H-I-R-I, and Otapa's O-T-T-A-P-P-A. Not really necessary for you to memorize those words. Many fine translators like to use these terms, though, in the Pali, because they actually mean so much more in the Pali language than their kind of direct translation into the English language, and, and you'll see why. Hiri is translated as moral shame, moral shame. So shame does not have a real good connotation in our English language. It's associated with self-aversion. And that's not what it means in the Pali language. Hiri is an inner sense that our words or behavior don't feel right. It's that kind of inner uh, light that comes up or Uh, that kind of signal that comes up in the heart and the mind that, oh, what I'm about to say or what I just said, that doesn't feel quite right. It's like um, 
feeling, it's as if we're feeling that we're not respecting ourselves by saying that. You know, I, sometimes I say um, words that I'm, I've been used to saying since I was a teenager. You know, those four-letter words. It's, maybe one of them starts with an S and ends with a T. And that it, it can come so easily. My, my kids say it too. You know, it's just kind of in the generation. And every time I say it, and you know, when I'm really trying to pay attention, I, I just cringe. Like, this is not respecting myself. This is not a sign of my inner dignity. You know, I still say it, but um, <laughs> you know, I'm trying my best. And and sometimes I say it just it it doesn't mean like it's harming anybody else. But it's it's just kind of harming my own mind. Why would I want to let that go through my mind? just unconsciously. It's an intuitive sense that this is hurtful to my own mind stream because it's like making it more and more of a habit. The more I say it, the more it becomes a habit. It's respect for, in the long term, one's own well-being. So an example of this is when I was at a retreat one time in Burma, It was a a longer retreat of two months, intensive retreating. And I had just come out of a situation where there was a lot of um, disharmony between uh, myself and another person, another couple. And it was a very big thing in my life. It felt like a very deep karmic interaction that I had just gone through and a very deep karmic cutting of the relationship. It was very, very hurtful to me, and I probably said things that were very, very hurtful to one person or another or to both. And um, I felt uh, a lot of times the sting of remembering what I had said, and it would go round and round in my mind, trying to defend myself, blaming, uh, feeling the blame and round and round and round. It said that um, feeling a sense of hearing come up in your own mind or like respecting oneself is like seeing a pile of dung that you're just about to step into and pulling your, pulling your foot back. It's like seeing or even smelling a pile of dung and like pulling away from it. And so it was this unchecked habit of mind that this was going through in the mind, the argument in my own mind, or what I should have said, what I did say, what I would say, or, you know, what would happen that I could kind of have a touche with that person or both persons. And I reported this to the teacher at the time, uh, the monastic teacher, the Sayadaw, we call him the Sayadaw, coming up over and over again, and I would get this twinge and say that this was aversion, just like felt aversion to why am I thinking this over and over again. And the twinge would also be a deep sense of don't go there, don't go there. And I kind of explained this to him, but not in those exact words. And in time, he reflected back to me that this is really hiri, hiri, this kind of respecting yourself for not letting this kind of loop Uh, not letting my mind get lost in this loop over and over and over again. 
And he said, some of his exact words, he says, when you feel this coming on, withdraw your attention, withdraw your energy from this loop that keeps going over and over again. And one of the things he said, because I would always feel it in the walking meditation, he would say, when you walk and that thought comes, just let it go in the ground. I was kind of surprised to hear him say this because he's very, very classical teacher. Let it, just let it go into the ground. Something like that. It just really helped me to understand the withdrawing part. It's like withdrawing your foot from a pile of dung that you're just about to step into and that you're going to carry around on your shoe and smell it and feel it. Just, you know, don't go there. It's sort of, I feel like this hiri is the don't go there mind, the be careful mind. It's one of the guardians of the world. It's respecting oneself, seeing the danger to oneself, seeing that it will make your mind dirty, is what, one of, is what this teacher would say. It makes your mind dirty because you go into feelings of guilt and kind of feelings of aversion and ill will and attachment to your point of view, these defilements. So that's Hiri. And the other one is Otapa. Otapa is, uh, in the direct English translation, moral dread or moral fear. This dread or fear is not a kind of defilement. This also is a wholesome state of mind, this otapa. It's a healthy, very healthy form of fear. It's said that when our speech and behavior could be harmful to someone, we, we know, we know that, we feel that. It's kind of knowing that there will be harm to another if we say or do something. So we try to catch it before it comes out of our mouth or before it goes into action. It's a wise sense of knowing and respecting the communal standards that we live in. And they're basic to everyone. It's respect for others. A community is as fragile as one person who says or does something in a way that breaks the the feeling of safety in that community. What we might fear is that the members of the community that we are devoted to, that we love, that we respect, that we would lose their, their respect. This is what we fear. This is what we dread. So this is a very healthy thing. Sometimes, um, you know, there are little ways in which I, I think, oh, if I do this, then um, my teacher or this particular teacher or my elders they would think this is, this is not a good thing to say or to do. We might, be fear, we might fear that we might be punished lawfully, legally, if we do something, steal, for example, or uh, lie as a, as a, on, a, on the witness stand. So this is a healthy form of fear. And... Uh, it comes from one of the commentaries that uh, my teacher Upandita said recently. He said, this is like seeing 
or feeling a burning hot flame and pulling ourselves away from it if we're already in it or if we're going towards it. It's just pulling our hand away from this heat, from this fire, because it will, it will burn. So moral dread is dreading the consequences of, of being burned, of being shunned, or the legal or societal implications of doing something that's unwholesome. Manindra would always say that there's a signal. You feel this inner guardian as a signal. It's about to, it's, it tells you that um, you, you're about to say or do something that will harm yourself or harm another. I just remember clearly when he gave me that teaching. We, we were, he gave me a lot of teachings like standing next to the sink or um, standing next to the stove or on walks, and a lot of teachings that he gave were, it's as if we were sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, and there were, they were that important. It wasn't anything to just kind of, you know, forget about, or think that it was just so simple that you, you don't have to remember this, that, yeah, I know that. But he gave the teaching so clearly when um, he was staying with us, and I was uh, cooking his meal. And he was kind of teaching me how to cook uh, an Indian meal to put what spices to put in it. And of course, I, I'm not a, a good cook, and cooking Indian foods is, uh, I just don't do it, you know, in my life. And so he was saying to put this spice in and put that spice in. and. I wasn't really doing it right, so I could just see his face, you know, have a look of a little bit of disgust, a little bit of anguish, a little bit of impatience about it. And so I stopped right there and I said, uh, his, his kind of lips go down a little bit, you know, and uh, he kind of has a look in his eyes. And I can tell in, in the kind of stiffness in his body. And I said, Manindraji, is something going on with you? What's happening? Are, are you not happy with the way I'm doing this? Are you angry? And he said, one of the things he said uh, is, anger is there, but I am not anger. But another thing he said was, he said, yes, there is a signal. The signal is there that uh, anger is there. And he said, uh, when the signal is there, then I pay attention. And then whatever could come out of the mouth uh, doesn't. It won't come out of the mouth. Whatever could come out of the body is I just try to hold still so it won't come out, you know, like grabbing the spoon and telling me you're not doing it right. So he said, there is a signal, and this signal is hiriotapa, that you'll harm yourself, you'll harm another if you say something or you do something in a way that disrespects your own karmic stream. It's like you're you're putting this... Uh, uh, ill will or attachment or delusion back into the stream of your mind. It's be careful. Be careful. This is from Goethe. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power 
to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. It's very straightforward. It's very common sense in a way. We give a gift of fearlessness to others when we have this signal and we pay attention to this be careful signal because people know that we care and respect for them when we see that happening, when we see that it's not going to come out of the mouths of others or or into their behavior. They won't hurt us. They're really trying to take care of themselves as well as take care of those around them. It's greatly supported by mindfulness because we're mindfully attentive. This is what we're training in. When we're mindfully attentive, we know those places, those signals. But when we're not so attentive, when we're just kind of like letting the mind stray here and there, and we don't see really what's going on beneath the surface, when we can't see the habit patterns clearly and without another level of reactivity to it, we can, we can really understand, we can really um, be okay with letting it be seen. It's better to see it than not to see it, because when we see it, we can refrain from acting it out. So there have been plenty of times, I'm sure, for all of you, when you've seen these come up in your, in your inner life, and you have been careful about them, or you've not been careful. And somebody asked today, why are we doing this? One of the reasons why we're doing this is so that we can be more careful about our, our inner life, not putting greed, hatred, and delusion back into our karmic stream that will again uh, ripen and bear fruit, cause us suffering, cause us more delusion, more attachment, more aversion, if we're not mindful. But when we're mindful, we can see each moment for what it is. We don't have to act it out. We can purify the mind that way. Being attentive to our speech and behavior is... uh, That's what we're doing. We're purifying our speech and behavior when we don't act it out. So a friend told me once um, that she had this interaction where she felt hurt and betrayed and she wanted to strike out and hurt that person back and um, make that person feel really, really bad because of what that person did or said or did not do. Or did not say. But she caught it because of really feeling this um, signal, this heriotapa. She did not say those hurtful words or whatever behavior she was going to do. She waited until she could rely on being able to say something clearly, calmly, truthfully, and then it happened that she was able to do that, that she was able to say that. She felt more certain about herself. She felt that strength. It's a real inner strength to feel Hiri and Otapa, those two guardians, 
those two lights of the world in us. We feel really stable, like a rock inside, like a tree with deep, deep roots. And uh, we feel that we can really rely on ourselves. She didn't drop unwholesome seeds into her karmic stream. This is Hiri respecting oneself, respecting her, the dignity of her life. Otapa not hurting another. She had respect for the other person, so she wouldn't hurt that person over and over again. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Noble Eightfold Path, which we're all practicing here, has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, to depend upon, something on which you can sit comfortably on as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, you will risk losing mindfulness and will face all the dangers that ensue. So these Hiri Otapa, they're guardians of the world. They make our commitment to really looking after ourselves when we practice the five precepts. They're like the cultivation of this inner beauty. That's why we're all here. When we have this uh, inner beauty, there's a beautiful form of renunciation that's happening. Another of the paramis. We can let go of what causes harm. That's renunciation. Relinquishing greed, hatred, and delusion in many different ways through our speech and behavior. It's also a cultivation of compassion because when we do this, we have the ultimate compassion for ourselves as well as for others. There's a wholesome qualities of uh, goodwill, of metta that arises, of generosity because we're giving that feeling of fearlessness to others. That's a very important piece of generosity. It's a moment of inviolable protection, not just for others, but for ourselves as well. So this is the ultimate beauty, inner beauty, that we're developing here so that we can go from this place of this... uh, this ground, this fertile ground of uh, deep harmonizing with ourselves and with others that brings uh, the deepest wisdom to our minds and to our hearts that we then bring out into the world. So I'd like to end this with them. This is a poem that uh, Seda Upandita wrote in his language, uh, Burmese, and then it was translated into English. And this was in 1985, and he wrote this um, in Australia during that first retreat that I attended. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, Birth only in states of clarity. Great beauty results with integrity. 
adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, birth only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment, adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from the life, from a life of simplicity, birth only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Adorned with the brightness of clear insight, the true nature of the world is seen right, birth only in states of ease and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment with those words. Time for some walking and uh, coming back for the evening sitting where there will be a chanting of the sharing of the merit. And so please come for that. Usually Steve doesn't do such a long sitting. Steve will lead that sitting uh, on, on this night. So you're welcome to come and enjoy. <laughs> 